Shalom, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to uh, make a comment or suggestion for us, please email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com or visit us on the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. Um, keep that social media vibe going. Um, as again, as we've talked about in a couple of podcasts recently, we were trying to explore in many ways this uh, tremendous upheaval and transition that's taking place in the American Jewish community, and how it may impact our generation of baby boomers and our families. Uh, we're going to continue that uh, this morning and uh, for this uh, edition of the Seekers of Meaning. And it is with great pleasure that we welcome Rabbi Stanley Davids. Um, self-described cool dude from Santa Monica, <laughs> California, but a nationally recognized author and commentator on the American Jewish scene. Dr. Leah Hockman, associate professor at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, Los Angeles campus, and the director of the Lockheim School of Jewish Studies. So Stanley, Leah, welcome very, very much. Uh, you, they are here to discuss their brand new a book, very, very important book, especially at this time in our Jewish history, uh, Reforming Judaism, Moments of Disruption in Jewish Thought. Uh, and let's get to the details right away. This is available through the usual outlets, uh, bookstores, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon. Is that that's correct? That's where you can get it? Okay. Published by the CCAR Press as part of their ongoing uh, commitment to Jewish scholarship. So, Stanley, Leah, thank you very, very much for joining us. The, the subtitle of this, Moments of Disruption of Jewish Thoughts, I got to go right to this. Are we in the middle of a radical disruption of Jewish thought right now? Take it away, whoever wants to go first. Okay, Leah? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question whether right now we're in a disruption or if we're still in the same disruption that started really at the turn of the 20 into the 21st century. To my mind, the disruptions that begin at 9-11 or and we could push back to 1983 to push back to 1967. But I think the disruption of 9-11 of in 2000 really as we turned to the 21st century, the reverberations of the global network and the sort of the the, the changing of the way in which we conceive of where we are, the places that we are, with whom we're in conversation, with whom we're not in conversation, that to me is still part of the disruption that we're in. And the, re the re reverberations of that to me are, that's sort of what we're trying to tease out to really understand. I think that disruption, one thing that Stan and I have talked about in the book is that disruptions are incredibly productive. And even as we're in mourning in so many different ways, mourning a pre-COVID life, mourning a, a pre-October 7th life, what does it mean to, to make meaning out of something we don't yet fully understand, I think is part of the project of the other moments in history in which Jews have found themselves where they're trying to make meaning in a, in a time where they don't know what the meaning is yet. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned nine eleven because I, 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 I think that's the trauma that initiated this that's the first trauma which we never have recovered from COVID is the second trauma which we are still trying to recover from and for the jewish world and probably right now the world this war uh and the geopolitical restructuring of that this war is part of because it's not an isolation because as you know and as is part of your the essays in the book nothing happens in a vacuum 
Um, these are three major traumas, right? Within the space of a generation. No wonder everybody is dealing with so much free floating anxiety and, and, and concern. Stanley, define for us what this word disruption is. Can you, can you give us a, a thumbnail, easy to understand definition? Because one person's disruption may be another person's just minor inconvenience. Okay. I'm going to take the privilege that I don't have as an invited guest to say that <laughs> I, I think that the disruption of October 7th is a powerful, major disruption, maybe only within the Jewish community. But within the disruption created by October 7th, the American Jewish community is going to be forced into reexamining why, how it exists, and what meaning there is for that community, the Israeli community will never be the same. It will right. never go back to the world that was before. Huge disruption. We have no idea where that means. And the third aspect is the relationship between the American Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community, a huge disruption. It's affecting people of a certain age. It's affecting people of certain political perspectives. And it most definitely is impacting on how people view their own Jewish identities. So I think the world for the Jewish people will never be the same after October 7th. And what that will mean and how it will eventuate, I don't know. What is a disruption? Something that occurs that dramatically stops business as usual. Something that happens that causes people to look at the world with utterly new eyes, often frightened and uncertain, and struggling to make sense out of what's going on. I, I can give you know, my favorite example is 1755. I mean, that's close to when I was born. 1755, the earthquake that struck Lisbon. An earthquake. No one planned it. It happened. But it utterly shattered the Western world. It shattered the world of philosophy. It ignited the Enlightenment. All kinds of responses. The Catholic Church was set back on its heels because it didn't have an answer to why did such a lovely religious community suffer an incredible, incomparable loss. So that's what disruption is all about. So, I, I you know, you, um, Leah, I, I have to ask you this question because just as you were talking, I said, wait a minute, you're, you're a professor at HUC. You, you're dealing with rabbinic students, um, other students who are studying at the seminary. Um, it's been a little bit of a while since the war broke out. Are you, what are you sensing on campus from our, from the students at HUC? It's a really interesting question. First, I realized I didn't thank you for having us on. So I want to bracket before I answer. Oh, no, no, no. My, our pleasure. Really, the, it's, it's a joy to be in conversation with you. 
um, and with Stan, as always. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a unique position at HUC because I teach rabbinical students, but I also teach the School of Education and the Executive Master's Program. And I also teach in the Zellical School for Jewish Nonprofit Management, part of a Jewish historical American Jewish um, right. structure and evolution class. And I also am at USC. I was working with the undergrads. So, so I have a, a bird's eye view of all of the programs yeah, yeah. and the, d the dissonance between what's happening on American campuses in terms of anti-Semitism and fragility and the concretization of different opinions is very distinct from what's happening within HUC. HUC students without fail, regardless of their, we have a real range of political and social opinions. Um, they're really in mourning. Many of my students in Los Angeles had friends who were at the, the festival um, who are touched, touched either, either they lost friends at the festival or they are deeply involved in peace activism. And so in the aftermath, when we found out that different people were actually killed, when we thought that maybe they had been taken hostage, in, in the slow rollout of information, the trauma has hit them anew in a variety of different kinds of ways. At the same time, you know, it, we've been in conversation with our, our colleagues in Israel and, you know, one of the most devastating conversations was when the person who's acting as the head of the rabbinical program in Israel right now, had, she was in Italy when she, when the massacre happened and she had to start training her Israeli rabbinical students to perform thousands of funerals, sort of that the pragmatic thing that we often think in a curricular kind of way, how do you do a funeral? How do you do an intake? What does it mean to do a, a moment of joy? And yet this pragmatic feeling that really hit home for all of the students, what it means in their roles, their clerical roles and their roles as leaders and their roles as, as colleagues and their roles as human beings and, and their roles as Jews. So it's been really tough. I mean, people struggle with um, leading tefillah, with what it means to do. I'm, we're teaching, I'm in the middle of a medieval Jewish thought class and I'll be teaching modern Jewish thought in the spring. And the struggle of earlier claims of meaning, that's hard for the students because they're living this experience that they had hoped really never to have experienced, so uncharted territory. I had a one student who very beautifully read the Cain and Abel story on that week in the Echa right. trope. Right. Uh, and in doing that was just really gave sort of witness to what it feels like to be a rabbinic leader. And that I that was a really, really useful understanding of how the rabbinic students are processing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for no, asking. You. I appreciate that. No, no, thank you. Because um, we're tentatively scheduled to, to have on, a, on, a, on another Seekers of Meaning very soon the head of uh, Maram from Israel. Um, and and there, I think the way you put it really, in the sense that it is a death, you know, disruption, a death can be a huge disruption to a person, to a community, to a family. This is um, the, the use of the term that so many people are in mourning for what we have been lost and may never come again. Okay, and, Richie, Richie, yes, let, let's, let's try to avoid the purely negative, real aspect of disruption, because we are already seeing some strange 
interesting, positive things as people try to adjust to the mourning, to the loss, to the pain. The, the best example, not mine because people are talking about it, is that that community which was mobilizing the protests against the Netanyahu government, 125,000 week after week after week, month after month after month, transitioned in about 24 hours to becoming a major voluntary structure to bring food, clothing to the displaced, to uh, uniforms for right, the soul. Right. They became a massive social action, social justice organization, which, by the way, they're only waiting for the war to end so they can resume the other part of their... This is fascinating that people well, respond. So this brings me back to, to, to some of the theses, theses and essays in the book. The, the, the book is, it, it is a series of essays. Um, and I'm struck by in some of the, the, the perceptions with um, the concept of, dis, of the disruptors uh, embedded in the fabric of our tradition, uh, the prophets, Moses, the Pharisees, uh, Ben Zakkai, uh, Jeremiah, who said, okay, you know, worship God in Babylonia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to tell you the story. Um, and there's, and as a result of these disruptions, different Judaisms emerged. So c could you play around with the fact that through these disruptions, whether it's the earthquake, as you were talking about, or these pivotal moments in Jewish history, out of this disruption, new Judaisms emerge. Talk to me about the power of the Jewish community to constantly, as my former history professor when I was at school, Dr. Ellis Rifkin of blessed memory, uh, would talk about the innovative character of the Jewish psyche. The question is really important, and it's very, very true. But understand that just because there is a massive disruption doesn't mean that good things will flow. Out of many disruptions, communities, ideologies, countries, organizations disappear. They disappear because they lack the flexibility and I guess maybe the optimism to say, we can take this and do something good with it. There is no guarantee that following disruptions, good things will emerge. That is in our hands. And, you know, if you, if you look to examples, it's just like evolution. Evolution has more dead ends than finally producing Leah and me. Uh, but, but, you know, that's the way it goes. So you, you take, for example, uh, what Paul did in Pauline Christianity, a huge disruption. And to be very simple, but the, the uh, chapter is fabulous. What Paul did was challenge Judaism to the roots at a time when we were in profound sorrow, alienation, no idea where to go. The rabbis, following the challenges of Paul, 
finally developed something which we would call rabbinic Judaism. Would rabbinic Judaism have emerged without the disruption of Paul? God only knows, but I'm going to assume not so likely that the response to Christianity was to sharpen, was to get rid of temple worship, get rid of the centrality of the priesthood, and begin to confront the role of women, begin to confront the nature of what would become Midrash, where interpretation was legalized and encouraged. So, Leah, you, you, you're modern Jewish thought, and, and you teach this, and Stanley's just referred to the, to the essay by Rabbi Garraway on uh, the disruptive nature of um, the development of Christianity. So this is one of the great disruptions within Jewish history, uh, culminated in the greater disruption impact, perhaps, by the, um, the conversion of... Uh, the, the Roman Empire and any conversion. That was a big and, deal. And the and the and the basic leakage of the state and religion, and we're still paying the price of that uh, 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 throughout Jewish history. These essays. So, so, talk to me a little bit about you know you teach this. How do how do you see this essay, uh, which is a really cool essay by Rabbi Garraway on? On the impact of uh, of uh, this develop and the cultural milieu post Pharisaic Judaism that this emerged out of this 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 cauldron this marketplace of the souls in the first couple of centuries of the Common Era. What's your take on this type of destruction a disruption? So I want to quote my friend and colleague and teacher, Rabbi Stan, Stanley Davids here and say that, you know, there's, we, we don't have a full, it's not like there's a single story in modern Jewish history or in Jewish history. That's not that we started in point X and in a singular or linear line came to point Y. That all of these different forks in the road, some of them have been multiple forks in the road. They've required Jews to make decisions and Jews, as we know, make lots of different decisions, not always in tandem with other Jews. And I think that the way in which Paul operates as a potential disruption to really post-Temple Judaism to this first and second century, that he is an exemplar that other disruptors have also had to, had to contend with. Someone like the Gaon, for instance, Sajid Gaon, is really concerned with the incredible anxiety of still being in Galut, you know, a thousand years after the destruction of the Temple. So on the other side of the rabbinic project. What do we do with the situation in which the all of the mechanisms that the rabbis put together, not and it wasn't clear that the rabbis were going to be the authorities that they've now become, right? In this time period between Paul and the Gaon, I don't know that they ever been put in a sentence together before, but in this time period between Paul and the Gaon, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of options for Jews to think of Judaisms in different kinds of ways. The Karaites come immediately to mind, but there are other options. The project of the medieval Jewish thinkers, the Gaon, but also Halevi and Bachia ibn Pakuda and Maimonides, and there's a terrific essay on Maimonides in the volume. All they're trying to create the authority that the rabbis have taken on for themselves and further the rabbinic project, make that the legitimate project. And their success in the disruption of a continued galut 
is actually the road that we took that now when we, if we don't look in those moments of we could have gone X way or we could have gone Y way, we don't look at those moments of, so in the business, we call this periodization, right? In these moments of transition, then we don't actually know what the other options were. And we come up with this idea that it's an inevitable conclusion where we are. And it, you know, we would, we would be remiss to say that we weren't interested in the ways in which reform and liberal Judaisms have come to be in the manner in which they be. So one thought about that would be the sense of, we can see like the Maimonidean disruption, right? To, to create what the Gaon started, which is like, here's a creed. Everybody believe this creed. Here's a, a code. Everybody use this code, right? Here's a way of thinking. And he wasn't, I mean, he's successful because he's Maimonides, but he actually wasn't successful in those endeavors. And that, that's really important. It's so interesting and really important because, you know, if we see the disruption of the modern age, someone like Holdheim, and there's a terrific essay by Michael Meyer um, in, in this um, collection about Holdheim's, he could, well, Holdheim, Samuel Holdheim, who was a reform thinker, who was not at all on board with someone like Abraham Geiger, it, Judaism could have gone that way, right? There could have not been the kind of Judaism that we now see in the world. And I think that the investigation, the curiosity about how we got to be where we are is part of that project that who is Paul, right? How did, how did Christianity become Christianity? How did rabbinic Judaism come to be rabbinic Judaism? What were the competitions? And what's our, what are our competitions? What are the challenges that we face in the 21st century beyond the things that we are obvious to us, right? What are the intellectual challenges? What are the spiritual challenges? What are the community challenges? Who is our Paul? It, and I mean that in a metaphor. No, 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 way. no, no. Well, you, you, you mentioned something about, let me jump to an essay that, um, uh, I, I really wanted to ask the two of you about because there's a couple of other essays that I that don't I, I think they're, they're the disruptive character of, of of what the authors were writing I don't get enough play. One of them um, is by Rabbi Englander uh, on the disruption of secularism. I, I I'm looking at that and say, whoa, that's we don't really talk we talk about the di the disruption of secularism. Is it negative? Is it positive? Or we just don't know? Certainly the impact of secularism in the American Jewish community, I think has been quite palpable. So I, I'd like to ask both of you then to comment on, on, um, Rabbi Englander's very, very interesting essay on, uh, secularism, um, and, and how to see secularism as, uh, a disruptor and the impact of that. So, Stanley, why don't you lead off? Well, one of, the, one of the big problems always is what will survive? What works? And that's only available in retrospect. Secularism was part of a worldwide, a Western worldwide phenomenon. The Haskalah, the Enlightenment, part of a, you know, that, that's such a great example too. In the article that the chapter that dealt with uh, that area, you find Spinoza and Kant and Mendelssohn yelling at each other, but never really communicating. 
trying to figure out what do we do with a world that now is not going to be religiously denominated, but rather controlled by intellect, logic, science, and so forth. And we include reference to Kant. Some of your listeners may notice Kant isn't recognized as Jewish. On the other hand, Kant had more to do with the shaping of Jewish thought going forward than many other traditional Jewish thinkers. And how do we know that worked, Richie? Only in retrospect, when the Jewish community was able to grow and develop what that secularism, what that philosophic approach meant. I'm going to give you two additional examples. Mordecai Kaplan, bring people up away from 2,000 years ago and, and, and talk about now. Mordecai Kaplan, 1930s, recognized, Marmer, uh, Michael Marmer wrote a brilliant chapter on that, wrote, he looked at the world and said, we need science, we need logic, we need community. We, it wasn't there. And he took the Jewish world and yanked it into the 20th century. We may not all recognize the power of the impact of Mordecai Kaplan. He was, of course, ostracized by the traditional Jewish community. And his ideas were so powerful that today, if you ask members of the reform community, well, to what extent have you been, you know, impacted by Mordecai Kaplan? The answer might be, who? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they don't have a clue. And then my other example that no one would think of as a disruption, but Evan Kent in his chapter brilliantly pointed out Debbie Friedman as a disruptor. You right, know, right. That's it was very interesting to, to see that. Uh, the issue isn't who is a disruptor. The issue is do we see the disruption and respond to it? Many of our congregations today refuse to see the fact that denomination, traditional worship patterns, keeping women out of the seats of authority, that world is past. But for many Jews, they don't want it to be past. And so they refuse to look at the disruption for what it is. Debbie took the camp movement and her own way of approaching Jewish life and the, the Misha Barak and all kinds of stuff that she did and brought them into the world where her ideas have been both reviled and widely accepted. At the very beginning, the, the reform cantorate regarded Debbie's work as a, a metastasizing disease. Now that we have the Debbie Friedman Cantorial School, <clears throat> apparently that's not quite the case. You can reject the reality of disruption, secularism, and die. Because that's what happens when you do not grapple with the reality of disruptions. I'm going to go back to October 7th. 
if you really think that our goal is to go back to what was, write a farewell note. We'll see you in the afterlife. It's over. Right. Well, it's interesting because um, in looking back, now that I'm old, looking back to my rabbinate of 51 and a half years, uh, I realized that our generation lived through um, the major disruptions in the American reform movement because we were witness to the, the feminist revolution because Sally was in my class, uh, the famous class of 72. Um, the, um, the LGBTQ revolution, the interfaith revolution, and the spiritual music revolution, all within post-1972 in the rabbinate of my generation. Yes. And, you know, in reading the book and then taking a look at my, our, our rabbinic generation from when we walked off of Plum Street Temple in June of 1972 into a Judaism that does not exist anymore. And just sport of 50, just doesn't exist anymore. Um, God is in his holy temple. If you sing it, it's like, like listening to all these radio. So the, um, or behold, it is the springtime of the year. One of the favorites at Knesset Israel, where I grew up in a classical reform shul in, in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. But this idea of, of secularism and this why it was a fascinating essay. One of the other essays, Leah, that I, I uh, really struck me was uh, Rabbi um, Levy's essay on the afterlife. Uh, the afterlife as part of moments of disruption. Um, and it, it, it just is a fascinating because I, I, I will bet you my Phillies tickets, which may or may not be worth something uh, next year, this year, um, that very few people really take a look at the Jewish value, the concept of the afterlife as a disruptive theological, sociological event. Could you just reflect on your your feelings about that that chapter and how you how you understand it yeah i want to just say uh part of the disruption of your rabbinate is also patrilineal descent yeah that, oh yeah you, i remember that, those right, votes that, and what's interesting is that there are so many different and also part of your rabbinate is the fall of the berlin wall and the end of the cold war right and oh, yeah. what's interesting is how incredibly productive the last 51 years have been and also mm -hmm. how many crazy things have happened that it's easy to forget some of the big ones um, so I want to say that. Also, I want to just tell you, uh, I'm a, I'm a, not a newly born, but an, a reinvigorated Dodgers fan. So I don't want your Phillies tickets. Um, no, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, especially in light of that blowing $700 million in a guy who, anyway, let's not get into that. Yeah. I, well, I'll talk to you in a year. I'll see you in October. How about yeah, that? I, 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 I hope I do see you in October. <laughs> so uh, the, one of the great things about that that essay by Candice Levy is that she wrote it as she was finishing. She's already gotten her PhD out of UCLA, and she was finishing her rabbinic studies uh, at the same time that she was writing that essay. Uh, and it's, it's an incredible uh, reread of the thing that we don't even really think that. One of the things I think I hear a lot from my undergraduates and also, frankly, from some of my graduate students is that uh, there's that sense of inchoateness of what it means to have a Jewish afterlife or even have a notion of Jewish afterlife. And why don't we have a clear, I mean, there's this sort of a competitive spirit. Why don't we have a clear picture? Uh, and what I think Candace does in that essay is really unpack the 
both the mechanisms by which the rabbis are really doing the work of creating a Judaism that we have inherited, and also un like thinking through with them what is at stake in creating a sense of, okay, what, what does happen to us with a sense of this worldliness or the world to comeness? Where is our attention meant to be? Where is our tension the most productive? In what ways can we unpack that experience? And for me, that essay is as much about the product, like the information that she shares and the process by which the rabbis are un are doing that kind of really like the theological construction of, 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 of ideas and giving us this one example helps us think about all the other examples, the constructions of other ideas. So I'll just point also at the same time in that same section of the book is that essay by um, Gwen Kessler about the construction of gender by the rabbis. And those, these, these are huge ideas for us in the 21st century. So that, that this conversation is happening with the rabbis in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. And that they, it still reverberates for the ways in which we understand meaning, the way that we understand our own sense of identities, our own theological purposes. That to me is really remarkable. This is one of the reasons that I have loved the project of this book so much. Um, and reading all of these essays together, you can tell I like a nice, I like a nice scope of a story. I like a nice no, no, narrative. No, no. And I think that um, the way in which these these moments where we've we've really put the magnifying glass allows us to see really not just that one moment, but how the whole story, the structure of Jewish life, Jewish experience, Jewish thought, Jewish belief has grown on top. Of, we're not standing alone in a vacuum. We're really standing on the shoulders of other generations who've had to confront big issues of meaning and purpose and ideology. The challenge that Leah prop, properly put forward major, we have to understand that survival from each of these disruptions was not a given. We adjusted, we theologically, ideologically, intellectually created, and it worked. But that doesn't mean that this automatically guarantees Netzach Yisrael lo yishakir, we're going to live forever, don't you worry. Because that's not a given in this universe. We have to speak to our people, our institutions, our communities, and say, wake up to the challenges of today so that there will be a tomorrow. Uh, that's a great coda, Stanley. Thank you very much. To uh, you, Rabbi Stanley Davids, uh, Dr. Leah Hockman, uh, the book again, uh, Reforming Judaism, Moments of Disruption in Jewish Thought, with best of luck uh, with the book. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining us and for sharing your ideas. It's unbelievable testimony to the power of ideas. It's one of the things I took away from this book, the power of an idea to transform people in the world. Thank you. Stay safe, both of you. Thank you very much. Stay high to Aviva for me. Um, and Lee, I hope to see you in October, maybe at Dodger Stadium. Oh, yeah. To <laughs> so all of you, thank you very, very much for joining, on this, joining us on this edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. 
Again, if you'd like to help support our work, go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the conveniently located donate button. Just follow the prompts. If you or your organization would like to become a sponsor of some of these podcasts, please email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubeck and Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a big todah rabah to our producer, Steve Lubeckin. Thank you very much again for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning. In the meantime, till we see each other again, please stay safe, be healthy, and most of all, be kind to one another. Todah Shalom.